This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. The MSNBC Washington Post Democratic Presidential Debate. Live from Atlanta, Georgia. And the Tyler Perry Studios. This is a special episode of Post Reports. It's Thursday, November 21st. I'm Martine Powers. I'm here in Atlanta, Georgia at the fifth Democratic primary debate co-hosted by The Washington Post and MSNBC, and it has just wrapped up. So now I'm here with three of my colleagues from The Post to talk through the key takeaways of this debate. Um, Let's just start with having you guys introduce yourselves. Annie Linsky with The Washington Post. I'm Michael Shearer, also with The Post. I'm Cleve Wooten. I'm a national political reporter with The Washington Post. So I think that if you were an undecided Democratic voter going into this debate, I'm not sure that this would have left you with a clear impression of what the actual substantive differences are between the candidates. Like, in some ways, I thought it was really a refreshing debate because it felt very civil. Like, there was a lot of talk about meaningful issues, and it felt like there weren't a lot of moments of people jumping down each other's throats. But I think you could also say that, like, this debate was a little bit boring. Well, I don't think we're ready to call the debate boring quite yet. But I do think, I mean, if you think about the context, this debate comes after hours and hours and hours of um, one of the most dramatic days of the impeachment hearings. And I think that these candidates were up there thinking in that in that way that they are presenting themselves as each individually an alternative to Trump rather than the sniping at each other and wanting to show some sort of some sort of sense of unity as, as a party. So I think that's where the tone comes from. I think, I think it was different than the other debates for a couple of reasons. The other debates have all been about taking down the front runner, like that's been the dynamic of the debates. There wasn't a ton of taking down the top polling people in this one. That I was surprised by that, right. that it seemed like, especially Warren and, and Sanders, that they got away without really anyone pushing and, back and against Buttigieg them. And Buttigieg didn't take too much. I mean, he was, going into the debate, everybody was sort of talking about Buttigieg is going to take a lot of incoming. The second difference was the other debates have all been sort of these, about the big divide between the progressive policy ideas, the big government stuff, Medicare for all, and the sort of more mainstream traditional democratic stuff. And there wasn't a lot of policy debate. I think instead of that... What we got was a lot of stylistic debate around the question of uh, who's, who's going to actually win. And basically what you heard over and over again was each candidate coming forward and saying, I'm the one who's going to beat Donald Trump because. Amy Klobuchar, you know, I'm the one with the experience. I'm a woman. I know how to do this. I've introduced the bills. Uh, Kamala Harris, my biography is the opposite of his. I'll prosecute the case. Um, so each one was sort of presenting themselves that way. And in that way, it was sort of a clarifying debate in a very different way than we've had the last uh, four. And I think what was interesting about this debate is that I think Klobuchar is a great example of we saw these candidates that have had less attention in previous debates kind of have moments that, that where they got to stand out, where they got to say something pretty meaningful. Well, I, I think if you're Amy Klobuchar, this is kind of the moment that you've been waiting for or one of them. You know, a lot of a lot of candidates are, are simply gone. And so now she I think there was one point in the debate where she was the one who had spoken the most. It gives her kind of a national platform, a national audience and a chance to a to, to just put out her policy positions, but also to 
finally land some zingers, some jokes, which she's been trying to do for a while, but couldn't. They work tonight. I feel yeah, like some of her jokes were legitimately landed. funny. Mm-hmm. The, the, the one about a... I managed to get $17,000 worth of donations from my ex-boyfriends. My first Senate race, I literally called everyone I knew and I set what is still an all-time Senate record. I raised $17,000 from (laughs) ex-boyfriends. And I'd like to point out, it is not an expanding base, so I don't just... Yeah, which I've heard 74,000 times, but I'm sure most of the American public hasn't. What did you think about Joe Biden tonight? How did he do? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, he, he just he seems to you know, we came into this um, this campaign believing that he was a very strong debater. I mean, that was part of the um, sort of narrative about him. But he seems to really struggle in these in these forums. And I, I mean, I just was filing the sto- our main bar story today and a few minutes ago really and um, we were looking back at his comments about violence against women in the Me Too moment where he kept on saying we're punching at it and so we have to just change the culture period and keep punching at it and punching at it and punching at it it will be a big pr- no I really mean it, 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 make, it it's a gigantic issue we're punching at it we're trying to fix it we're punching at it and it was just like oh my goodness it was a very surprising language to use when you're talking about sort of this Me Too moment and how women are treated by men. And even his framing of that answer beyond the awkwardness of just using the phrase punching it, but he was asked about the Me Too movement and then he talks about violence against women, which is a part of it, but doesn't really feel like the heart of the conversation that's happening culturally right now. The story for him from the beginning has been he's the guy who has a good profile to win this nomination. He's just not able to perform. And I think that's tonight again. There were a couple. Didn't he say he had the support of the first, or the only black senator? Three former chairs of the Black Caucus. The only African American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, My point no, that's is, not true. true. The other that's one is true. here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said the first. He yeah. meant to the say that he had the, senator. the he, he wanted to say first, first black but female he said senator. Only, he said the and only he was one. standing on stage with another black female senator. So and he does not have a strong reaction. Well, but you know, one of the things Biden is also saying and trying to reinforce is that he almost alone or singularly has the support of you know, African-Americans in the South and that other folks don't. I mean, one of the things we've talked about earlier was whether or not he uses Obama as a shield. But, you know, he does have the ability to say that, whereas other folks just don't. And he made that he did try to make that point, I think, you know, tonight. And this is a, a good place to make it. I mean, this is a city that's in the South that, you know, Tyler Perry Studios here um, in Atlanta. And I, I was actually surprised that race did not come up more and more you know, quickly. I think towards the end, there was this very interesting dynamic where two of the black candidates on stage were making points about criminal justice uh, and and sort of challenging some of the white candidates on those um, on those topics. I wanted to return back to this issue of, of black voters. I, I have a lifetime of experience with black voters. I've been one since I was 18. <laughs> um, nobody on this stage should need a focus group to hear from African American voters. Uh, black voters are pissed off and they're worried. They're pissed off because the only time our issues seem to be really paid attention to by politicians is when people are looking for their vote. And they're worried because the Democratic Party, we don't want to see people miss this opportunity. 
and lose because we are nominating someone that doesn't, isn't trusted, doesn't have authentic connection. And so that's what's on the ballot, and issues do matter. I, I have a lot of respect uh, for, for the vice president. He has uh, swore me into my office as a hero. This week I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I, 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 I thought you might have been high when you said it. <laughs> and, and let me tell you. Well, I, I think it came up a, a, a couple of times. I mean, people invoked the name of Stacey Abrams, you know, several times. They talked about marijuana. They talked about criminal justice reform. There was some, you know, Obama's name was mentioned several times. I think I think that candidates are trying to send a message either to African-American voters or to people who believe that the candidate has to have the support of African-American voters that, you know, that I met, that I can build, that I can bring everybody under the big tent. Now, whether people believe that, you know, I don't know. But I think everybody's definitely trying to send that message that I'm I'm the one that, you know, is the candidate for all of us. One of the subtexts of this debate is that for one of the two remaining uh, people of color, uh, uh, black candidates on stage, this is probably his last debate. Cory Booker is not on track to make the December cutoff. Um, Tulsi Gabbard, there's a good chance she doesn't make the December cutoff, so she's going to leave the stage. Julian Castro's already gone. Julian Castro's already gone. Kamala Harris, who will make the stage next time, is is sort of a hobbled campaign at this point. She doesn't have the money to do the the television advertising she wants to do in Iowa. She's polling uh, really low. Um, And so that there was a lot of hope at the very beginning of this cycle that you had this incredibly diverse field. You had so many women running. And right now it's really Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren who are who are basically filling that role and and a bunch of white guys. And you have Cory Booker literally saying, please help. I think I I wrote that down, you know, please donate to my. The fact that that was his closing line, I think, was very stark. Yeah, although he did tell us um, in the in the, the live video or whatever that he'd raised two hundred thousand dollars just just from the debate. Now, I don't know how much further he has to go. Maybe that's not enough, but maybe the please help helped. Well, but his problem is not money at this point. His problem is polling. If he can't yeah. get his polling to go up, he, he's out of the debates, and he's one of those candidates who's just. I mean, there has not yet been an example of a candidate who's not in the debates who has found a way to thrive. But mm-hmm. he is definitely not someone who will find a way to thrive if he is outside of the debates. I also just want to talk about the fact that this debate between the moderators and the candidates had the most women on stage in the history of U.S. presidential primary debates or presidential debates in general. You just drop so, the mic right now if you'd like. <laughs> well, well, I'm curious, how did we see that represented in the issues that were discussed on stage and which candidates were most effective at talking about those issues? Well, I think I mean, the, the obvious answer to that question was there's a whole segment about abortion um, in which a number of the candidates were able to speak very clearly. I think it was one of Elizabeth Warren's strongest moments of the night when she was asked about what she would do about pro-life Democrats in the party. I have made clear what I think the Democratic Party stands for. I'm not here to try to drive anyone out of this party. I'm not here to try to build fences. But I am here to say this is what I will fight for as President of the United States. The women of America can count. Senator Warren, thank you. I think it was a big moment. I think it's also maybe a big moment that that wasn't the defining fact of this debate, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you did have an all-women moderating crew, but I don't think the questions they asked were questions that would only come from women moderators. I mean, I think those are, these are... Or, or shouldn't be questions that only come or from women moderators. Or shouldn't be moderators. questions. Yeah. And, they talked and, about parental leave. 
only two countries in the world that don't have paid family leave for new moms, the United States of America and Papua New Guinea. That is the entire list, and we need to get off this list as soon as possible. And it's also true that when issues affecting women came up, a lot of the men were fighting to get into that conversation. I mean, mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders was interrupting to talk about abortion. Biden was trying to talk about violence against women. I mean, that, so, so th th there weren't sort of gender walls built up around those issues. And then foreign policy. We had more foreign policy discussion, at least from, from what I sense, than we've had in previous debates. It sounds like that's the Andrea Mitchell. <laughs> that's the Andrea Mitchell influence right there, I think. Yeah, and, and part of me felt like the answers that we heard from candidates were pretty vague. You know, they'd be asked about, what would you do to respond to this foreign policy crisis? And the, their answer would basically be, wow, this, this crisis is actually a very big crisis, and here am I going to prove that I understand it, but I don't actually have an answer for it? One of the interesting dynamics, really, I think, with foreign policy, particularly among the, um, the more progressive candidates, the more liberal candidates, is there isn't an enormous difference in... Uh, in broad strokes between Trump and where Sanders and Warren are in terms of drawing down troops and ending foreign wars. And um, although, you know, both of them make the point that they would do it very, very differently than the way Trump has done it. And I think every time foreign policy came up, somebody made a reference to his Twitter, to Trump's Twitter feed and how <laughs> they might agree with the idea of getting in drawing down troops in um, Afghanistan but wouldn't do it, you know, by a, by a three o'clock in the morning tweet. So I find that to be one of the dynamics that is is interesting. Is that they're saying, look, look, we we actually do want an end game that looks quite similar to what Trump is doing, but we don't want to do it in the same way. I've I've kind of been frustrated by the foreign policy discussion in all these debates because it ends up kind of being cartoonish, right? If Russia comes up, it's Putin is bad and Trump is a Putin pawn. If uh, you know, Tulsi Gabbard gets to speak. It's all about regime change wars and these warmonger Democrats. Uh, if Bernie Sanders gets to speak, it's all about Joe Biden's vote uh, authorizing use of force in Iraq. And there's not really that much nuance that you end up getting um, from these candidates. And I don't think, even though there was a lot of discussion tonight, we really got beyond that um, because it, 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 the, the party's still sort of stuck in this fundamental divide about whether mainstream democratic foreign policy for the last 20, 30 years, which has actually been pretty hawkish, has been a horrible mistake or not. And that's about as far as the party can. Well, I, I have a theory, too, because I, you know, part of what we do on the campaign trail is asking people how they feel about foreign policy and all of that stuff. And I, and I oftentimes I'll ask people and I'll start rattling off stuff and their eyes will roll into the back of their heads. If, if you if you ask people what their top issues are, it's, you know, it's things like health care, paid parental leave. It's, it's not, you know, regime change and all of that stuff. And I, I, I do think that what a lot of candidates really um, are trying to do is not so much as, you know, inundate people with foreign policy ideas or whatever, as much as it is convince people that I got this. You know, like, I, I understand all these complicated things that you don't want to pay too much attention to <laughs> because you're not, you know, paid to, to do all this like all of us in this room are. And then if I'm elected, you don't have to yeah, pay attention. Yeah, like, I'll like I it, got this, I'll wear the suit, I'll do all the stuff, I'll remember the names, like, I'm good, let's go back to talking about health care. So I'm curious, if this was a debate where the quote-unquote frontrunners came out relatively unscathed, and then you had the people who are kind of struggling in the polls or struggling in their fundraising, 
giving off a, a, a more dominant show than, than maybe in previous debates. Do you think that really changes anything, or is this just kind of the swan song from the people who we may not see again? I, I do think there is a page that will turn in this debate. If you look back at September and October, the big flashpoints were around this issue of Medicare for All. You had really extensive kind of confusing discussions about pay-fors and, you know, how how it will be uh, implemented. You didn't really have that much of a discussion here. And at the same time, you had Elizabeth Warren, who was the target of a lot of this, successfully being able to present her new vision for um, uh, a sort of stepped path to Medicare for all. And so there's a way in which I think now that the field might be able to move on to a different discussion instead of sort of wrapping itself around where it's been since the last debate, this question of whether, you know, this plan is going to scare away suburban voters and swing voters and reelect Donald Trump, whether it's too expensive. Um, you know, most of the candidates, with the exception of Bernie Sanders, who is never going to change and no one expects him to change and his supporters know that are now more or less in the same place. And so I think that's a sort of important move for the whole field because now the the conversation goes somewhere else. What about you guys? Do you think anything changed after tonight? Oh, I I think, I do think so. I mean, I think um, particularly when we talk about Amy Klobuchar, I mean, we just saw her um, move to, you know, 6% support in, um, in Iowa. And I think, you know, tonight was a really good night for her. I mean, she, she capitalized on her debate performance last time, um, you know, to get to that 6%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a very fluid field. And I feel like if she's able to keep doing that in a field that is just, I just can't emphasize enough how fluid it it is. Well, and And it's thinning, right? It's thinning, but you still talk to voters and they often just still haven't made up their mind in Iowa. So a strong performance from her there, you know, I just think that this gives, gives her a little bit more of a boost. Annie, Michael, Cleve, thank you guys so much. Thank Thank you. you. Nap time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Martine Powers. That's it for this special episode of Post Reports. We'll be back in your feed at our regular time later today, when we'll be focusing on today's testimony from the impeachment inquiry. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org.